Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity to come together tonight uh, and to learn just a bit about you. God, as we open up the book of Leviticus, this is often a book that's difficult or uh, even sometimes boring in our vernacular, but God, I just thank you for this opportunity to open up something that maybe we skip over or skim over and don't pay as much detailed attention to. God, help us to see your glory in the words tonight uh, as we dig into your word. And God, just give us new eyes and new ears and open hearts to just receive and understand just your glory as we open this up and study it tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So <clears throat> I've been sort of praying about how we're going to approach the beginning of Leviticus and how we're going to talk about this. Uh, and I kind of want to backtrack for a little bit um, and discuss how we got here. We had decided, um, the elders actually decided, that it would be a good idea to do a Bible study, and they had come to me to ask if I would, I would teach it. And we sort of figured out what the format uh, would look like together, and we decided on a title uh, called Uncaged. And this comes from a, a quote from Charles Spurgeon. It says, the word of God is like a caged lion. It doesn't need to be defeated, or it doesn't need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. And so that's our goal, to unleash the word of God, um, to know God deeper, more intimately, and to get a better grasp of God's plan through the scriptures, to really uncage it, open it up, and see what God has in store from beginning to end. And so in the beginning, we decided, where are we going to start? How are we going to start this study? What's the best way to give people a grasp of what's in Scripture. And we thought, well, really I thought, and I impressed that thought on the elders, that Revelation is a great place to start. Because Revelation, since it's the capstone, it's the end, it's the conclusion, it ties all of the loose ends and the strings together. And by going through Revelation, you're forced to look back at all the strings it ties up. And so it gives you a really good overview of the totality of Scripture. And then after we went through Revelation, we decided to go from the end to the beginning and work our way back to the end. Um, but to do it in more of an overview fashion, to get a big understanding of the major themes and characters in God's scriptures, in his story. So when we started out in Genesis, the first 11 chapters cover four major events. Creation, the fall, the flood, and then the aftermath of the flood which contained the Tower of Babel and the beginning of nations. And then the rest of Genesis from 12 to chapter 12 to chapter 50 cover four really influential people. Because as the beginning of nations starts, God decides to narrow down one nation to reveal himself to the world through. And that is the Hebrew nation. And that story starts with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then through Jacob's sons, in particular, Joseph, in the book of Genesis. And then we moved into Exodus, where we just finished up. And we discovered the parallels between Moses and Jesus, the plagues of Egypt, the typology of Christ in the Passover, the tabernacle, and the priestly garments. Now, last week, I left with a little bit of a cliffhanger. For those of you who weren't here and didn't get it part of the Q&A time, there's a cliffhanger. I specifically mentioned to underline or to highlight the phrases in the description of the priestly garments that say, lest 
they die. If they were not wearing the priestly garments and they entered the holy place, they would die. But what does that cliffhanger have to do with everything? Well, the truth is the description of the priestly garments are just that. They're not a description of Aaron. They're not a description of the priest or his duties. They're a description of the clothing. And the clothing is a representation of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is a representation of Christ. It means for God to dwell with us, which Christ did. And so if Aaron or whoever the high priest was, wasn't wearing the clothes, wasn't wearing the representation of Christ as they entered the holy place, they could die because the high priest himself wasn't good enough to be in God's presence. He needed a representation of Christ covering him to be in God's presence. And that's why lest they die should be highlighted or underlined. And we move from the description of the tabernacle and the priestly garments to the work that gets done with the priestly garments and at the tabernacle in the book of Leviticus. Now, there are some problems with this book. A lot of times, if you ever start your journey on a, I'm going to read the Bible in a year, this is where we stop. The latter part of Exodus and the majority of of Leviticus doesn't give us any story. All through Genesis and through most of Exodus, there's a lot of action. There's a lot of story. There's a lot of movement. But towards the end of Exodus, they're at Mount, the Israelites are at Mount Sinai, and it's just God giving instruction and description, and it's just incredible detail. In fact, throughout the entire book of Leviticus, they start at the base of Mount Sinai, and it ends with them at the base of Mount Sinai. There's not much of what the Israelites are doing at all in the book of Leviticus. It's really just the employee handbook for the Levites. That's what this book is. And it's just incredible and tedious detail. And you might have heard the phrase, the devil is in the details. But in the law of Moses, that couldn't be further from the truth because as you experienced at the end of Exodus and as you will experience through the book of Leviticus, that actually in the law of Moses, Jesus is in the details. And hopefully, instead of this being something that we're not excited about or that we would normally want to skim over, we'll find a new appreciation for the scripture that we often find difficult or boring. So what is the book of Leviticus? Well, it's named Leviticus because, which literally means pertaining to the Levites. It's for the priestly order. As you found out in Genesis 49, if you read it, or as you go off into the book of Joshua as we move forward, you'll see that the, the sons of Levi have a different calling than the rest of the Israelites. They are the priests of Israel. And so their job and what they do is what this book is about. This book is about worship instruction and the elements for the priests to do their job. It's putting the elements of the tabernacle and the garments into practice, putting the elements of worship into practice. But most of all, this book is about atonement or sacrifice, whichever word you want to use. It's about sanctification or being cleansed and walking with God through that cleansing. 
And most importantly, it's about the holiness of God. To give you an understanding, the words offering or sacrifice are used over 90 times in the book of Leviticus. Blood is used 88 times. And the word holy is used 150 times in the book of Leviticus. Understanding the absolute holiness and the difference that God is from us comes through reading this book. So as we view this book over the next three weeks, we're going to be focusing on major portions of this book to get a grasp of what the whole thing means. This week, we'll be going over the five major sacrifices in Leviticus 1 through 7. Next week, we'll be going over the seven feasts in Leviticus 23. And then on the third week, we'll be going over specifically the Day of Atonement, which is in Leviticus chapter 16. So before we dig in, what's happening? This is being written somewhere between 1400 and 1450 BC. They're at the base of Mount Sinai getting instruction on how to do the priestly work um, and as God is directing Moses. And the first section, the first seven chapters are specifically about sacrifices. The first three sacrifices are very similar. Well, they're all, they all have similarities and repetition within them. But the first three are sort of lumped together as these sort of voluntary sacrifices that have more to do with fellowship with God. And the last two sacrifices have more to do with sin and atonement for sin. But these five sacrifices are the subject of the first seven chapters of Leviticus. And all throughout them, what you're going to see is Jesus. Jesus is the sacrifice. Remember that John called him the Lamb of God. Now, before we go through this Leviticus scripture, I do want to read two verses out of Romans for you. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. It says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern with the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul tells us to treat our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. And we're going to see what that means in the first sacrifice covered in Leviticus of the burnt offering. But just imagine for a second that we put this book aside. This is a book we like to not pay attention to the details. We like to skim through or skip over. But when John calls Jesus the Lamb of God, or when you see the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, if we didn't have the book of Leviticus, it wouldn't mean anywhere near as much because God is showing his people through the sacrifices how to be reconciled with him. The first seven chapters of Leviticus make Jesus' sacrifice important. Better understanding this gives us a better understanding of the work Jesus did on the cross. So with that said, the burnt offering in Leviticus chapter 1. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock of the herd and of the flock. In his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd. Let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He shall kill the bull before the Lord 
and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall skin the burnt offering, cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and lay wood in order and lay wood in order on the on fire. On the fire. Then the priests, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head, the fat, in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water, and the priest shall burn on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Now, there's some repetition after that, um, but I do want to point out verse 14, which says, and in the burnt sacrifice of his offering to the Lord is of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or young pigeons. So that verse is specifically just uh, a provision for poorer members of the community. If they can't afford the larger animal, they can probably afford a turtle dove or a pigeon. So they're still able to provide the sacrifice. So as we look at the burnt offering, what do we see? It must be a male without blemish. Hope you see where I'm going with that. Jesus. You lay your hand on the head of the animal and you lean on it. This symbolizes the transference of your sin onto the animal. This is a clean animal. It has no blemish, and it's a substitution for the unclean. Now, the interesting thing that's different from this sacrifice to all the other sacrifices is that each part of the animal, every part of the animal is consumed. This is an all-consuming sacrifice. It's done out of your own free will, and it makes atonement. But it's interesting that this one isn't for sin, but it does mention atonement. What does that have to do? It has to do with your connection or communion with God. As you'll see in all of the sacrifices, the one who is offering the sacrifice actually kills the animal. The priests take care of the butchering after the initial slicing of the throat, basically. But the one who offers the sacrifice is the one who kills it. Now, interestingly, Maybe you'll see the connection here. In Matthew 26, verse 50, this is when Judas betrays Jesus and he he kisses Jesus. Um, And after that, it says that they laid their hands on Jesus and seized him. Just like you lay your hands on the animal to transfer the sin to the animal. So who seized Jesus? It was the, the Romans, but he was betrayed by Judas, the Jew. So who, who sees Jesus? Who laid their hands on Jesus? Who killed Jesus? Both Jew and Gentile. The world killed Jesus, and the transference of sin onto him happened at that seizing. And he became the sacrifice for us. And so you see that in the burnt offering. The, the fact that it's an all-consuming offering, and it talks directly about the communion with God, brings us back to Romans 12, 1, offering up your body as a living sacrifice. This is almost a parallel. Think of it as if you are sold out for the work of God and you are on fire for God, you put your life, you give your life to the task of worshiping God because you've seen and you understand what his sacrifice did for you. So you are wholly consumed as a living sacrifice, much like the burnt offering was 
in representation to the communion with God. So that's the first sacrifice. The next one is the grain offering, and this is chapter 2. And it's, this is really interesting. So let's go ahead and just read through it, and then we'll break it down. When anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, or really high-quality flour. And he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. He shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, one of whom shall take from it his handful of fine flour and oil with all the frankincense, and the priest shall burn it as a memorial on the altar, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is most holy of the offerings of the Lord made by fire. So there were different offerings. Sometimes they were holy and they were able to be eaten or shared by the priests and the people, and some were most holy, and what was left over was consumed by the priests. And the burnt offering, different, was wholly consumed by the altar. And note, it wasn't eaten by either the priest or, or the people. Verse 4. And if you bring an offering, a grain offering baked in the oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of flour, fine flour mixed with oil, or unleavened wafers anointed with oil. But if your offering is a grain offering baked in a pan, it shall be a fine flour, unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. If your offering is a grain offering baked in a covered pan, it shall be a fine flour with oil. You shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. Then the priest shall take from the grain offering a memorial portion and burn it on the altar. It is an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And what is left of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is most holy offerings to the Lord made by fire. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey, any offering to the Lord made by fire. And then, you see some repetition in the rest of chapter 2. So, what is this? It's a, it's a grain offering. It's bread. Um, so, already you can maybe see the communion representation, the bread of life representation. Um, but it's fine flour, the highest quality, the ing- main ingredient for bread. It's made with oil, which always represents the Holy Spirit. There's salt which represents life, like life preserving, and it adds flavor. It can also be representative of grace. In Colossians, it asks that we season our words with salt or grace. Frankincense is a part of this offering. It's unleavened. There's no yeast. There's no decaying particles in there. So the opposite of salt, salt as a preservative, is used for this. Salt is life preserving. Yeast is life decaying. There's no yeast in this. It's unleavened or it's sinless. Yeast represents sin. And there's also no honey. Why? Because honey is a catalyst for the leaven to work and to work itself, to help the bread rise and puff up or to decay. So there's nothing that represents sin in the bread offering, but there is high quality flour. There is salt, which is life-preserving representative of grace and flavorful, and oil, which represents the Holy Spirit. But the most interesting thing to me is that there's frankincense included, and it's a sweet aroma to the Lord. Now, frankincense is one of the gifts that was given to Jesus after his birth. 
Interestingly, the gift of frankincense connected to the gifts given to Jesus at his birth. Um, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. And what does the name Bethlehem mean? House of bread. So you see, again, a picture of Christ in the grain offering and a picture of the communion. Next, we move on to the peace offering, which is chapter 3. Right, when his offering is a sacrifice of a peace offering, if he offers it of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Aaron's son's priest shall sprinkle the blood all around the altar. Then he shall offer this from the sacrifice or of the peace offering uh, made by fire to the Lord. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove. This is very detailed. Uh, and Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar upon the burnt sacrifice, which is on the wood that is on the fire as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And you see a bunch of repetition. I'm gonna skip down to verse 14. It says, and he shall offer it from his offering as an offering made by fire to the Lord, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys he shall remove. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as food and offering made by fire for a sweet aroma. All the, the fat is the Lord's. This shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations and all your dwellings. You shall eat neither fat nor blood. Now blood is where the life comes from. We get that from the book of Leviticus. And so they are not to eat it. The blood is only used for sacrificial purposes. But the peace offering, what do we see? It's very similar to the burnt offering, except it's not wholly consumed. Only the fat or the blood is consumed. It's eaten by both the person offering the sacrifice and the priest. Um, and again, you see no blemish and this is representation of fellowship or peace with God. Now, interestingly, you were to eat this at a very sh in a very short time. Um, and the priests were also to eat in a very short time. And so God gets the fat and the blood, and then you eat the other portions of it, and the priests eat that. So what do you see in that picture? Right, you're actually, this is very much a picture of communion, eating with the Lord. Right, you're actually having dinner with God. You are in communion with him. Now, before we move on to the other two sacrifices, which are very connected, the sinner offering and the trespass offering, otherwise known as the guilt offering, these two sacrifices, the next two, would always be performed before the first three that we talked about. Because the last two offerings deal with sin. They cover the sin of the people. And so, since these three sacrifices represent communion with God, you must have your sin covered first before you can commune with God. So whenever you were performing these sacrifices, or if you were a member of the community and you were bringing sacrifices to the tabernacle, you would bring a sin offering or a guilt offering with you, as well as your grain offering or peace offering or burnt offering. And the sin or guilt offering would be done first. And then the priest after that would perform one of these three offerings so that you could perform the communion with God and you could come to him.
clean because you've been covered by the sin offering or guilt offering. So these are very connected, um, the next two. So there's going to be some back and forth. But starting in chapter 4, Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord, in anything which ought not to be done and does any of them, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, uh, let him offer to the Lord for his sin, uh, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish, a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the bull's head, and kill the bull before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the blood, the bull's blood, and bring it into the tabernacle of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times. So this is a complete atoning sacrifice. Seven times is a number for completeness. Before the Lord, in front of the veil of the sanctuary. So the blood is sprinkled in front of the veil in the holy place. So this isn't done outside in the outer court. The blood is brought into the inner portion of the tabernacle. And the priest shall put some of the blood on, uh, on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord. So just before the veil is the altar of incense. And the priest is to put blood on the horns of the altar of incense before the veil in the holy place. And he shall pour the remaining blood of the bull at the base of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the meeting. He shall take from it all the fat of the bull as the sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat which is on the entrails, the two kidneys, and the fat that is on them by the flanks, and the fatty lobes attached to the liver above the kidneys he shall remove. As it is taken from the bull of the sacrifice of the peace offering, and the priest shall burn them on the altar of the burnt, uh, the burnt offering. But the bull's hide and all its flesh with its head and its legs, its entrails, and ophal, which really means all of its, his intestines. The whole bull shall be, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn on it wood with fire where the ashes are poured out. It shall be burned. And then I'm going to skip down quite a ways to the second half of verse 20. It says, so the priest shall make atonement for them and it shall be forgiven them. This is the first time the word forgiven shows up in Leviticus. It waits until we get to the sin offering because it's a covering for sin. So when this is performed, forgiveness ensues. So this is the first time forgiveness is in there. Now, the part I skipped really basically, um, there's a bunch of different rules or animals depending on who you were in the community and what you did. So if you were a leader or a member of the community, a different animal might need to be sacrificed, but it, it all is the same principle of what we just read. And so what do you see? This deals with sin. Whether you're, it's mostly unintentional sin, like sin you're ignorant of. If you committed anything, you bring a sin offering and it, it's supposed to cover you for it, even if you didn't know that you committed it. Now, there are different animals depending on, on your status, but one of the interesting things about the sin offering and you don't even find out until you're in chapter 5 in the trespass offering or the guilt offering in verse 11. It says this, If he is not able to bring two turtle doves or young pigeons, then he who sins shall bring for his offering one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a sin offering. He shall put no oil on it, nor shall he put frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. So if you were poor, a poor member of the community, you could, and you couldn't afford the animal, or the larger animal, you could bring a turtle dove or a pigeon. If you were so strapped that you couldn't afford that, you could actually bring a grain offering 
as a sin offering. But if you brought a grain offering because of your position in society, um, you were not to have any oil or frankincense in the grain offering uh, that you brought for a sin offering. Why? Well, the, the, origi- the, the grain offering is for com- communion with God. It represents our connection to him. In the sin offering, it is covering your sin. You are separated from him. It's not a sweet thing. It's not a good, sac- it's not a sacrifice that's being made for a good cause for you to bring something to God, for you to commune with him and to live with him. This is a sacrifice that gets you back in good standing with him that covers your sin. And so because it's not for a good cause, because it's not a sweet thing, there's no sweet aroma, there's no incense, and there's no oil. There's no Holy Spirit representation because there's a separation from God that has taken place. But once this is taken place, forgiveness ensues. That sounds a lot like Jesus. Now, there are a couple things that are really important to notice about the sin offering. One, you see that the person lays, the offerer lays the hand on the head of the animal outside of the tabernacle before the entrance to the gate. So they're not inside of the tabernacle. They're outside of the tabernacle. And they kill the animal outside of the tabernacle. And they bring the blood and the parts of the sacrifice in. But now they they sprinkle the blood on the altar of incense all the way in the holy place, right before the, the veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. But parts of the animal that are unclean, they take far away outside of the tabernacle courts, outside of the gate, outside of the court, to a pile of ashes, and they burn it outside. And the sacrifice, the rest of the animal is taken and sacrificed far away from the tabernacle. Well, Christ wasn't crucified at the Temple Mount. He is a sin offering or a guilt offering, and he was crucified where? Away from the Temple Mount, a little bit north up at the peak of Mount Moriah, likely where the place that Abraham sacrificed Isaac. But when Jesus was crucified, even though he was sacrificed away from the temple, what happened? The veil was torn. So Christ's presence in the sacrifice had a place in the temple, just like the sin offering, where the blood would be placed right before the veil on the altar of incense. The veil was torn at Christ's crucifixion, but he was crucified as a sin offering far away from the temple. So the picture of Jesus's sacrifice is very clear in the sin offering, and it's about to get even clearer in the trespass offering. So picking up in uh, chapter five, if a person sins in hearing the utterance of an oath and is a witness whether he has not been known the matter, if he does tell it or not, he bears guilt. Or if a person touches any unclean thing, whether it is the carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of an unclean livestock or the carcass of unclean creeping things, and he's unaware of it, he also shall be unclean and guilty. So even if you're not aware of it, you're guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness, whatever uncleanness with which a man may be defiled, and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, he's guilty. Or if a person swears, speaking thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, whether it is that a man may pronounce an oath or that he's unaware of it when he realizes it, he shall be guilty in any of these matters. And it shall be when he is guilty of any of these matters, he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing 
and he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a kid of the goats as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning the sin. If he is not able to bring a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord for his trespasses, which he has committed two turtle doves or two young pigeons. One is a sin offering, the other is a burnt offering. Um, and then, you know, it goes down, it talks that even if you can't do that, then the grain offering. Now, skipping forward, you see it's very similar to the sin offering. The difference is you can be completely unaware that you sin, but when you become aware, confess and then provide a guilt offering. Verse 14, this is where it gets really interesting. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, if a person commits a trespass and sins unintentionally in regard to the holy things of the Lord, then he shall bring to the Lord as his trespasses offering a ram without blemish. I would highlight that or underline it. With your valuation in shekels of silver, I would highlight that or underline that, according to the shekel of the sanctuary as a trespass offering. And he shall make restitution for the harm that he has done in regard to the holy thing. He shall add one-fifth to it and give it to the priests so that the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering and it shall be forgiven. If a person sins and commits any of these things which are forbidden to the Lord, which are forbidden uh, to be done by the commandments of the Lord, though he does not know it, yet he is guilty and shall bear his iniquity. And he shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish from the flock with your valuation as a trespass offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him regarding his ignorance in which he erred and did not know it. And it shall be forgiven him if a trespass offering he has certainly trespassed against the Lord. So this piece about restitution makes a big difference. Because what do you see? To be a trespass offering for restitution, you bring a ram. And not only that, you pay for the value of what went wrong as well. So you're not only bringing a guilt offering to cover your sin, you're making restitution with a silver silver shekel that you pay to the priest or you pay to the temple. So this should look very similar. One, in Genesis 22, when Abraham sacrifices, goes to sacrifice Isaac, he tells Isaac that God would bring a lamb, would, would offer, he would have a lamb for them even though he has no idea what's going to happen. As they get to the top of the mountain and Abraham's about to sacrifice Isaac, God stops Abraham and says, don't, don't harm the boy. You've passed the test. You've shown how faithful you are to me. You wouldn't even withhold your only son. And then right there is a ram in the thicket. Instead of a lamb, God provides a ram. And Abraham and Isaac sacrifice the ram on that place which is just north of the temple, at the peak of Mount Moriah, the place where Jesus was crucified. The Lamb of God. God provided a lamb there much later. But he initially provided a ram. And that ram represents Jesus. Now, interestingly, when Jesus was crucified, he was arrested because he was betrayed by Judas for silver. But Judas, being guilty, went back feeling guilty for betraying innocent blood throws the money back at the high priests at the temple. Jesus is the ram from the, is represented as the ram in the offering from Abraham and Isaac. And he's paid for in restitution with silver that Judas throws at the temple. This, to me, 
when you look at Genesis 22, the restitution and the crucifixion of Jesus, it all paints one clear picture that God had a plan and he wanted to make sure that there was an ultimate sacrifice that met all the details of his law. And Jesus is surely did. He's without blemish. He's crucified and his sacrifice is made away from the temple as a sin offering. He's paid for in silver by Judas. And even though he's sacrificed away from the temple, his presence is in the holy of holies and the holy place as the veil is torn as Jesus dies. And Jesus' death and sacrifice is covered in all five sacrifices, and he meets the requirements of the law to be the ultimate sacrifice for us. The typology is clear. So we are going to cover over the next couple of weeks the seven feasts found in Leviticus 23, and then the last feast is the Day of Atonement. We're going to spend a whole session on that in the third week. But I hope that this section, which seems repetitive and sometimes boring, has taken on new light and a new shape for you. And if you are considering reading the book of Hebrews, or if you just did, you can see how the Levitical priesthood that's painted in Hebrews as a picture of Christ becomes very clear, and that book becomes very understandable. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this word. Thank you for this book. God, you gave a handbook, a guide for the priests of what to do. And God, it saddens me to think that today, Orthodox Jews don't have this practice. They have a shadow of this practice. They perform good deeds or spend time, set time aside fasting and, and reading to try to accomplish the goals that the sacrificial law would have accomplished. So they have a shadow of the thing that was a shadow of you. In essence, they have a copy of a copy. It makes me so sad that they've missed the clear picture of Jesus in the sacrificial Levitical law and instead have bought into the, the rabbinical teachings that remove some of the ordinances of the sacrifices and make it easier to miss the, the clear picture that you paint of Jesus in the Levitical priesthood. And I hope that we can all grasp a new appreciation for this book and the roots that it took down and set to make what Jesus did make sense and be so clear that he is the Messiah and the ultimate sacrifice for our sin to be cleansed. I just thank you for that, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.